Behind the text, first week of our series, you guys are on the ground floor. That's always a good thing. As Dougie was sharing with us, Scripture, you know, our Bible is incredibly important to us, right? If you're a believer, that Bible is like, it's golden. It's worth its weight in gold, if not more. Um, and mainly because not, not for any other reason, really, um, but for the fact that it reveals God, right? It is literally God revealing himself to us, and not only revealing himself to us, but revealing his relationship with his creation, which includes us, right? Scripture is God's story, which includes his will and his plan for our lives, like for me and you, like for all of us. So in a nutshell, in a nutshell, Three sentences, summary of the Bible. God's the author, we're the characters, and Jesus is the theme. But here's the tension, this word, word. Right? I, I kind of got it bolded there or yellowed or green. I'm not terribly sure what color that is. Um, but that word is kind of like an onion, right? You remember uh, Shrek, right? The donkey, he's got many layers. Well, that word, word, it's got layers. I'll tell you what, it's got layers that go on and on and on. And so what we're going to try to do with this series, we're going to try to peel back some of those layers. Just peel back some of the mystery um, because it's really not a mystery. God wanted us to know this stuff. It wasn't a secret. Like he desperately wanted us to know this, this stuff. So uh, we're just going to kind of peel back and, and, and dig into it just a little bit. Because the Bible, Dougie kind of alluded to this. On the one hand, the Word of God, the Bible, uh, 39 books in the Old Testament written in about a thousand year span of time, right? That's like three times, maybe four times the age of our nation, right? We think, whoa, we're so, whoa. Like thousand years, a huge long period of time. And then the New Testament written in a span of about 60 years, give or take a few. Um, together, 1,500 year span of time. For those who have trouble with those words, 1,500 years beginning to end. Now, that's a lot, of, a lot of time, a lot of culture, a lot of language development, a lot of culture development, a lot of things change, right? Not necessarily the intent of the authors, but the words and the idioms and the phrases that they're using, they, they change. They change meaning, actually. So we've got all these books, 66 books. We also got 15 more in the Apocrypha. We're going to dig into that. Those were a bunch of writings that were written in the intertestimonial period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, very apocalyptic in nature. We'll, we'll dig into that during this series. We'll kind of find out a little bit about what the Apocrypha is all about. Um, but again, 1,500 years. And we're, we're looking at histories and letters and narratives and poetry and genealogies and the gospels and parables and the law and prophecy and wisdom literature and apocalyptic literature. Right? And, and, and you put all these together, and it's really, really, really hard sometimes to see the arc, the over, over, over arc of God's story. Right? We get so lost in amongst the trees of all these different genres of, of literature. But there is a story, and it, you know, we, sometimes we try to pick up our Bible, and we kind of try to read it either like a novel, like trying to decipher the story. And there is a story in there, but you've you got to work at it just a little bit. So it's not like a novel, but, and it's also not like an Ikea instruction manual, right? You ever heard of the Bible, like basic instructions before leaving earth, right? You know, and, and people pick this up and it goes, well, where, where's number one? Where's the first thing I do? And like Song of Solomon, what? <laughs> and, and, they, and they're just like, wow, this, this is a confusing book. And they quit. And they just, they just quit. Because nobody's ever, you know, in one year they hear, oh, it's very, very simple. And then, and then the other people say, no, it's actually complex. And this is kind of what I'm driving at at this point. It's a fairly complex document, complex collection of documents spread out over an awfully, awfully long time. 
On top of all that, we got at least 40 different authors, three different continents, written in three different languages, right? The ancient Hebrews, they spoke Hebrew, the ancient Israelites. Then they got captured by the Babylonians. They had to go live in Babylon for 70-some-odd years, and lo and behold, they came back, and they kind of forgot their language. They came back with a new language, Aramaic. So we have Jesus and the people in the northern part of Israel where a lot of the people came back. They spoke Aramaic. Um, and then the Romans, they kind of took over the Greek world and adopted the Greek language and culture and spread it over. So then we got the New Testament written in Greek. Right, so we have all these languages. And this, is, this, this leads to this, this idea that it is an incredibly complex, incredible document. Not even a lifetime would be enough to plumb the depths and the truths contained in this book. But to the person who puts in the time and the energy to properly interpret what they read, it's like a banquet fit for a king. Right? You, you just never stop gorging and feasting on, on the beauty of not only the word, but what the word describes, our, our, our heavenly father and, and his plan of salvation and, and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. I mean, oh my, my goodness, it just gets better and better. But on the other hand, we have an equally true statement that you might have heard at one point in your life, maybe you even said this, right? Like you're sitting in a Sunday school class and the teacher, he's a professional, he studied, you know, whatnot, and, and he's interpreting, right? And someone says something like, hit that next slide there, you don't have to interpret the Bible, just read it and do what it says, right? What are, what are we going to look at all these Hebrew and Greek words for? Oh my goodness, just, just read it. It, it. It's just plain text, just, just read it and do what it says, and again, a lot of times this is kind of a, a defensive statement made to a, a preacher who whips out too many Hebrew words and, and Greek words. Um, and what they're saying is by interpreting the plain text in any way different than what appears at first glance to be the plain meaning of the text, people, they kind of get up in arms and they're like, hey, the pastor's trying to take away the Bible from us, right? I mean, this is for us and he's trying to take it away and make it for the experts and that's not Right? After all, right, any person with half a brain can read it and understand it. And then they continue. The problem with so many teachers and preachers, they dig around so much, they tend to muddy the waters. <laughs> Guilty of that occasionally. <laughs> Diane's like, ah, I lost you after the first sentence, Jerry. You got, you got weird there. Um, what was once clear to us when we first read it, which is, I think, part of the problem, right? They read it once and decided, oh, I should get everything out of it, um, isn't so clear anymore. Now, there's lots of crazy in that statement, but there's a lot of truth in these statements, too. Christians should be able to read and believe and obey the Bible. There's a, a report that just came out uh, last week. It's called the, um, the State of Theology. Now, it's put out by a Baptist uh, organization, so it is uh, Reformed theology, a little bit different than our Wesleyan Armenian theology. Um, but, but in it, they, they make a, a pretty big statement um, that Christians, in this survey, they ask them... Um, is theology the realm of pastors and teachers only? It was like overwhelming, no. And the next question is, um, basically, can anybody access the stuff that pastors access? And it was like overwhelming, yes. Right? So what I'm presenting is no longer the realm of white towers and academia. This, this is, I, I dig this out right out of my laptop. Y'all got laptops, right? You, you got the same buttons and, and things that I have. You access everything that I'm accessing right? The Bible should not be an obscure book if properly read and studied. In fact, probably the bigger problem 
might not be biblical illiteracy, but that's a huge one, right? And that came out in the state of theology. People's understanding of the Bible is anemic. I mean, it is bad. The, the, the opinions that people have that they think that are in the Bible, it's, it's, <laughs> they clearly ever, they don't read their Bibles. Uh, I, that's the only thing I can conclude. Um, the bigger problem might not be biblical literacy. I know that's a huge one. The bigger problem might very well be biblical disobedience, right? We understand it fine. We just don't want to do it, right? Anybody? <laughs> I just don't want to do it. Now, it is true. Lots of people, lots of pastors, and it becomes a very prideful thing looking for the unique interpretation. And over time, I've learned that the unique interpretation is usually wrong. And about a week or two after you deliver the unique interpretation, you recognize that it's wrong, and then you just look like an idiot, <laughs> right? So I, I spend a lot of time when I feel like, wow, that's different. Let me, I'll check everything, because I don't, I don't want to stand up here and present something wrong. I mean, that, that, can't, can't do that. I'm, I'm not allowed. <laughs> I'm not allowed. So why not just read and obey, right? Why do we need to interpret? One reason we've looked at is the complexity of the document itself. It's incredibly complex. But the other reason is you, you all, right? You're all, you're characters, right? You're the characters in the Bible, but you're also, you're just characters, right? You're also radically different, which means that when you come to the text, you come to the text and you bring all of your radical differentness to the text and you read all of your stuff into the text, and what Lori's reading into the text is not what somebody else is reading into the text. They're reading into it from their background, their socioeconomic place, their gender, their age, their life experiences. I mean, the whole nine yards, and they're extracting a certain understanding. While Job person B over here has none of those experiences, is not from that part of the world, does not have that socioeconomic background, and they read it, radically different interpretation. So we all come to Scripture... As interpreters, we do. All right, sound booth, settle down. All <laughs> um, right, so we're the characters, right? We interpret, we all interpret radically differently. And more often than not, what we unintentionally bring to the text, and, and sometimes intentionally, like we've got an agenda, and we'll find, we'll find a text that'll support our agenda. I mean, we do that really well. Right? We sometimes we, we unintentionally or intentionally bring stuff into the text that unintentionally leads us away from the truth and causes us to read all sorts of foreign ideas into the text that were simply not there at the beginning. We do this. We bring 20th century into a first century text. You can't do that. You simply can't. You've got to bring the first century text up to the 20th century. Once again, to be perfectly clear, correctly interpreting, properly applying what we read is so incredibly important because we already looked at this. Scripture tells us God's story, right? Sharing, us, sharing with us his plan and his will for our lives, like me and you, which makes Scripture incredibly, again, incredibly important. We as Christians, we turn to the Bible for help and understanding something about God and the world we live in, but it's not just information for information's sake. Right, The information provided in the Bible has eternal consequences. It's not just, hey, it's raining tomorrow, so wear a raincoat. It doesn't stop at that. It says, here's what eternity looks like. Be prepared. <laughs> Be prepared. Paul writes this in his letter to the Christians in Rome, the purpose of Scripture. It says, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. 
so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement that they provide, we have hope. That's why we read scripture. We have hope. And as we learned a couple weeks back, hope has a name. Hope has a name. It's not a law, right? It's not a ritual. It's not an incantation, right? It's not a perfectly memorized scripture, although that, that, that's important to memorize scripture. Don't get me wrong. But hope isn't any of those things. Listen to Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. This is, this is the hope. This is the hope. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received on and on which you have taken your stand. On this, by this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. If you buy into anybody else's narrative about how to be saved, right? You got to be here. You got to be doing that. You got to be wearing that. You can't be wearing that. I mean, if anybody tells you any of those things, pull this verse out. Sorry. I don't want to weaponize scripture, but sorry. Otherwise, you put your money on the wrong pony. <laughs> that's what Paul's saying. I don't know if he's in the horse racing, but that's, that's what, the, what the verse is saying. For what I received, I pass on to you of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas or Peter and then to the twelve. So according to the scriptures, God's story, right, his plan, his will for our lives, me and you, Looks like it has to center on Jesus Christ. It's not like suggests that it center on Jesus Christ. Like it has to center on Jesus Christ. This whole book, right? Your faith needs to be placed in Jesus Christ. Not in your own righteousness. Yeah, if you wait for your own righteousness, what we learned last week, you're going to be waiting for an awfully long time. Because if the law could have saved anybody, it would have done so by now. That's what Paul was saying. But all this stuff about Jesus, I know young, younger generations really pushing back on that. Well, that's awfully exclusive. <laughs> Egomaniac. Right? They're coming up with some pretty crazy terms. Um, but really, all those questions kind of revolve around two interrelated issues, two really, really, really big questions that we've got to answer if we're going to give Scripture the authority that it deserves. Here are the two issues upon which everything else rests. The authority of Scripture and the inspiration of Scripture. Right? It's, it's reliable. It's credible. The information about my life and about my eternity is reliable and credible if I give this book authority. Right? And I give it authority because I believe it is inspired by God. If I believe that it was inspired by Marv, I might not buy it. Does that make sense? I know I like Marv and all, but I don't know if he's got the plan for my salvation straight. We give Scripture the authority in our lives if we believe the message is actually God-inspired. The less we believe that God actually inspired the message, the less authority we give the message. And vice versa. The more we believe that God inspired the message, the more authority we give it. So it all rests in the inspiration. Do we believe... Like Dougie was saying, these words are from God or are they from humans? And that's a pretty wide continuum. There's a whole lot of positions to hold between God and humans. 
We're going to kind of look at that. We're going to kind of peruse it today, but in our series, we're going to really dig into some of this stuff. Because the issue, it really wasn't an issue, this authority. You know, nobody questioned the inspiration of Scripture um, until a whole bunch of things happened in the, in the middle of the last millennium, right? We got the Enlightenment, we got the Age of Reason, the Renaissance, modern science, and finally we kind of arrive at post-modernity, all of which kind of challenged the Bible's authority, right? It seemed to challenge the Bible's authority, seemingly offering alternative voices of authority that competed with or were viewed as, not necessarily true, but were viewed as contrary to Scripture, science, things like this. But here's the good news, right? The all or nothing from God approach to the Bible is rapidly fallen by the wayside, right? Research from all different sides of the issue are all kind of arriving at the same idea. There's something to this. There's something to this. Everyone is agreeing. It's just, it's kind of fun. It just really, really is. Some folks who once thought the Bible just kind of fell from heaven, right? Kind of metaphorically complete, perfect, boom, that's it. They're now entertaining the idea that it might just have been additionally shaped by humans. Not entirely, but humans played a part, right? It might have been shaped by human context and histories and worldviews and even cultural and personal presuppositions and idiosyncrasies, right? You, you read that. You, you read, as you read the Gospels, you recognize people's uh, personality tendencies. Like you read about Peter and you eventually... You, Right? You, get a, you get a picture of him as a person. Right? He's, he's, he's a multifaceted person. He's not just a, a two-dimensional two figure in the Bible. Other folks who once believed the Bible just to be a collection of stories and tales and human presuppositions and idiosyncrasies right, um, are now discovering or admitting right, that the Bible boldly and accurately addresses and answers questions that science can't answer and they can't even address them so there's this slow coming back together of a secular world and a holy world um, that for a while I think we were led to believe that the two couldn't be together but research and then this is a lot of stuff I want to share with you in this series right we're coming back around and everyone's agreeing this this is something special right this is, isn't just a great piece of literature this is beyond beyond something special so y'all have some options now best illustrated by dr rob staples very very well known nazarene wesleyan theologian he's now passed um he uh he worked at several of our universities i think he was at northwest at some point he was at southern um but he wrote a book called Words of Faith. And in this book, he takes theological words and he just, he, he just explodes them wide open so that we can really, really, really you know, understand all the layers of some of these, these words. Um, and he does this. He, he quotes Martin Luther talking about Scripture in the chapter about Scripture in this book, Words of Faith. He writes, the Bible is the manger in which Christ is laid. The, the, he's quoting Martin Luther, the reformer from the 1500s. And what Martin Luther was doing is utilizing Luke's account of Jesus' birth in which the shepherds found the Christ child laying in the manger. Now, the manger itself wasn't the shepherds' ultimate goal, right? They were looking for the newborn baby. And the manger was simply the place to look, where the angel told him to look for the baby, 
The point of Luther's analogy is that Christ, who is the living Word, right, is found in the Bible, which is the written Word. I remember when I first heard this, I was like, wait, 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 time out. We got two different words? Yeah, we got the written Word, right, and we got Jesus Christ, the living Word. And the two play really well together. <laughs> they, they just do. They, they're amazing to watch. The Bible is simply an instrument directing us to Jesus, and it's not an end in and of itself. Staples then proceeds to tell a purely hypothetical story. This did not happen. So those of you who are having trouble understanding your Bible, you can't go home and say, whoa, Jerry said this happened in the Bible. No, it didn't. Hypothetical. Four shepherds visit the Christ child in the manger. Each one of these shepherds represent a choice that people make about how best to read and interpret the Bible. So one by one, they come to the manger, which in the analogy is the Bible, holding the Christ child. You following me? The first shepherd comes in the manger and says, this is a weak manger. Some of the boards have knot holes in them. So he tries to make it better by ripping out the miracle boards and the virgin birth board and the, the resurrection board and any of the boards that were difficult to understand or challenging. But pretty soon he weakened the manger so much that Christ falls into the straw on the barn floor beneath him. Second shepherd rushes up. I'll defend the manger. manger. I'll fight anyone who tinkers with it. Let no one lay a hand on it. And he spends most of his energy defending the manager and practically idolizing the boards of the manger, which were the written word. Leaving little time to adore the Christ child, the living word lying in it. The third shepherd probably never even bothers to find the manger. The manger. Keep saying manager. The manger. The angel's announcement of the newborn king is a nice story, but it's only one story among many. It has meanings for some people, and other stories have meanings for other people. And who can say which story is most important? See, we can each create our own stories, and one is as true as the other. Now, the fourth shepherd. He's the good shepherd. Not Jesus. He's, okay, got lost there. Unlike the third shepherd, he knows he must go to the manger or the Bible to learn about Christ. But having come to the manger, and manger, basically he says of the many mangers or books in the world, only this one has the words of eternal life. But having come to the manger, he differs from the first shepherd who wants to reconstruct it. See, the fourth shepherd knows that this manger is truly unique. Of all the mangers or, or books in the world, this is the most important one. But he doesn't worship it. Having come to the manger, he, unlike the second shepherd, doesn't hang out, right? He avoids adoring the manger itself. This manger needs no defense. Its truth is strong enough to defend itself. And the fourth shepherd quickly turns to worship and adore the Christ child lying there. And then he goes and proclaims him. The written words are important. But they're important for one reason, because they point to our Savior. They point us to the living word in whom we adore and worship, not the book. So in light of all this, hopefully maybe a broader appreciation of some of the issues involved with arriving at the plain meaning of the text. I want to take a look at our 14th uh, article of faith. We have 16 of them. I want to take a look at our fourth one, not the 14th, but our fourth one. It's on the Holy Scripture. 
And what we're going to do is we're going to kind of flesh out our article of faith in this series. Um, so this morning, I just kind of want to just quickly kind of run through it just so that you recognize some of these words that they're using because they are loaded words, right? It's one sentence. The whole article, one sentence. So you know if it was written by a theologian, it's going to have some fat old words in there. So here's what it says. We believe in the plenary inspiration of the Holy Scriptures, by which we understand the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments given by divine inspiration, inerrantly revealing the word of God concerning us in all things necessary to our salvation, so that whatever is not contained therein is not to be enjoined as an article of faith. Now, just very quickly, I'm just going to kind of peel through this thing. Uh, The first word I want to look at is that plenary word, right? It means full, right? Meaning that all 66 books were inspired by God. And additionally, they were inspired by God, not partially, not sort of, but entirely. They are Holy Spirit inspired. These were not people's ideas. Okay? Plenary. Also denotes that middle ground between a dictated kind of inspiration, which if you study Islam or Church of Latter-day Saints, both of these faiths believe that, that in their holy books, the Book of Mormon, um, and, and in their, the, the Quran, um, that an angel, two different angels, recited word for word. In fact, if you are Islamic, you, up until recently with the internet, you were not allowed to read the Quran because you, not even not allowed, you couldn't because it was in ancient Arabic. Because that's what Muhammad spoke in 660 AD, whatever he lived. Um, to the point where they say if, if you read the Koran in ancient Arabic, this is their belief, you actually uh, you discern the tone and timbre of God's voice. It's like that dictated. Right? So you got that, 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 one, that one kind of extreme, and we, we don't go there. Right? We, we don't go to that extreme. Um, so that's a kind of one extreme. And the other extreme is the Bible is just like, it's just really, really good literature, kind of on par with like David Copperfield, right? Or War and Peace. Right? It's just a really, really good piece of literature with some good teaching in it, right? So we got one extreme and we got one extreme. And when we say plenary, what we're saying is we as Nazarenes, Wesley and Armenians, we kind of land in the middle on all this, right? Um, we affirm that the human process was the means by which God chose to communicate the message that he wanted to communicate. He didn't communicate it. We believe he didn't communicate it robotically. He communicated it through normal people, which for me, when I read the Bible and I read about, I mean, just some amazingly stupid people, I mean, I like, I can identify, right? There's no perfection in here. This is just filled with nutty, nutty people making really, really bad decisions, and, and they're so honest. It's so honest because... It's got that human element in it. Right? God inspiring these people just to be brutally honest about their failures and about their trust in Jesus. Both. Incredibly powerful, the humanness of it. The word inspiration comes from Paul's second letter to his protege, Timothy. We read it just a little bit earlier. Patty read it for us. I'm going to reread it again. He writes this about Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed. In the King James Version... Scripture is given by the inspiration of God, which is where we get that word, the inspiration. Um, But the actual, probably the better interpretation is God-breathed, spirit-breathed. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every 
good work. And then the crucial kind of related truth on the other side of that that sometimes we forget is that when we read our Bible, right, we're also assisting, the Holy Spirit is also assisting and guiding us and inspiring us to understand it to truth. So not only was it authored under the inspiration of God, translated under the inspiration of God, printed under the inspiration of God, interpreted under the inspiration of God, and finally by you, you read it and understand it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, I promise you, it's not going to make a lot of sense. It's going to be a lot of gibberish. The Holy Spirit's going to make these connections. He's going to start making connections, and you're going to start seeing this overarching theme of love and not fear. Luke records this truth in chapter 24 of his gospel. The resurrected Jesus meets two very, very dejected disciples. Like, they can't make sense of anything, right? This guy was supposed to be bringing a whole new kingdom, and all of a sudden he's crucified, like the worst way to die. And they're like, what? Jesus sees them on the road to Emmaus, and he says this. This is what I told you while I was still with you. I can just kind of feel, ugh. <laughs> Go, Homer. Everything must be filled, fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. Passage in Luke indicates that our eyes must be open for us to understand scripture. And by describing scripture as inspired or God-breathed, we affirm that it's the Holy Spirit, right, that brings the life, the energy, the renewal, the transformation, not the words on the paper. And it's very nervous when I say that, but understand, this is what Christ is saying. It's the Holy Spirit that gives life, not the words on the paper. Key result of this inspiration of scripture is that it inerrantly reveals the will of God concerning us in all things necessary to our salvation. Now again, inerrancy and infallibility have received a ton of press over the past about 120 years. Crazy thing, not a peep about these two words before 120 years ago. Right? Because before modernity and all that and evolution and scopes trial and all that, there was never really any challenge to the authority and thus the inspiration of Scripture. Everyone just accepted it. And all of a sudden, a whole bunch of things made people quite, whoa, 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 that doesn't line up with Scripture. That doesn't jive with what I've been reading since I was a little kid. There's got to be this, and they don't line up very well together. Again, these two words, inerrancy and infallibility, they've, because of the, um, the perceived attack by science, right, the, the church world kind of got defensive and and some folks went in certain directions, and some folks went in a very, what I would call, a very fundamentalist kind of position. And we use these two words, inerrancy and infallibility. And these terms, these are dictionary definitions, and, but the way people use these two words, very, very interchangeably. But if we wanted to be exact, I'm going to say a sentence here that might not be factually correct, but it helps us understand these two words, all right? The Pope is infallible, meaning he can't make a mistake. Again, if I'm wrong, Catholic people, forgive me. The Pope is infallible so that what he writes is therefore inerrant. Since he can't make a mistake, what he writes is without error. So infallibility leads to inerrancy. Now, again, when we talk about those two words, they're just like, right? Basically, they say the Bible has no errors. That's where everybody arrives at. The Bible simply contains no errors whatsoever. Now, as Wesleyan Armenian Nazarenes, we don't make that claim. 
We don't make the claim that the Bible contains no errors of any kind. Rather, we affirm that the Bible makes no errors at all when it comes to communicating to us everything we need to know about being saved. Dr. Spaulding from Mount Vernon Nazarene University writes this concerning the Bible's authority and inspiration. He says, it is the most authoritative at the point where it helps us understand the nature of God and the meaning of grace. Grace has a name, the name of Jesus. There are several reasons why we don't embrace, for example, maybe some of you have heard of the Chicago Statement on inerrancy. They basically make the statement that the Bible is without error in all things, including history and science. We don't make that claim for a couple different reasons. First of all, the Bible's purpose is salvation. It's not history or science. Now, we're not necessarily saying that mistakes or errors were made by the writers, but what we're doing is we're recognizing that what they knew about the natural world and what they knew about compared to what we know today isn't comparable. So it's not like they made mistakes. They just were explaining the world as they knew it. That is, what, how the way, that is the way God chose to communicate his message is through jars of clay. That's what we are. Very, very imperfect jars of clay. Nor do we defend this total inerrancy idea um, mainly because the people who claim this only claim it actually for the original, what they're called, autographs, or the original document. Well, the problem with this statement is the original documents don't exist, so it's a very easy statement to make. Anybody can make that statement because you can't prove it. And in fact, as we're going to look, there might not be original autographed, autographs, documents, in the way that you think of them. You're going to need to hang in there with this series. This is, this is going to, I'm going to, the goal of this series is not to uh, make you not believe Scripture. My goal by the end of this series is you will place even more authority in Scripture because you will have a fuller understanding of how to interpret it. So that, that's where we're going to arrive. You're going to, you're going to be done with this series, and you're just going to go, oh, yes, yes. All right, so just make sure we're all good on that. Um, so the original autographs, they don't even exist one way or the other. Final reason to reject that complete inerrancy, infallibility idea is in the final words of our article of faith. It says, so that whatever is not contained therein is not to be enjoined as an article of faith. In other words, we can spend a lot of time worrying about second coming scenarios, right? End of the world possibilities, trying to match historical utterances to every voice in Scripture, and so on, and so on, and so on. But what you'll notice is in our Articles of Faith, none of those issues are discussed. Not a one of them. Because they don't convey or restrict salvation. Now, we do speak to a lot of important things, like, you know, protecting unborn babies. Right? We do have a lot of issues that we take stands on, but you won't find them in our Articles of Faith because they don't give you salvation. Now, they might lead to a more abundant life or a more yucky life, but they do not affect your salvation. The blood of Christ affects your salvation and whether or not you accept and trust the blood of Christ. That's what conveys or rejects salvation. Not anybody's list of stuff that you got to do or not do if you're really a Christian. Now, I'm not sure who originally said it, but we Nazarenes hold dearly to it. We have unity in the essentials, and we have freedom in the non-essentials. The Nazarene Church doesn't really care where you stand on millennialism, the age of the earth, right? 
Our articles of faith are amazingly short and concise with not a whole lot of detail because we don't want to make you all lockstep. We want you to believe in Jesus Christ and everything else. Knock yourself out. I want to close my message and prepare us to receive communion. I want to share a passage from Matthew. And in this passage, Jesus is describing or he's explaining his relationship to the word. So it's, it's the living word explaining the written word, right? So you kind of got to get, get, get that in your head. It's the living word explaining to us the written word. He says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, when he made this statement, and you might not be aware of this, but it's on the Sea of Galilee, a very, very natural amphitheater. There's about four or 5,000 people sitting there, men, you read about it, and you think, wow, how can Jesus talk and like 10, 15,000 people hear him? Well, they've gone to this amphitheater, and they've had a guy stand right down on the edge of the water and talk. And about 20, 10 to 20,000 people gathered in this natural amphitheater can hear perfectly clear. Isn't that crazy? Right? He didn't have a microphone, and people wonder, well, how did all those people hear him? Right, there it is. So the crowd, they'd been hearing rumors that Jesus was doing away with the law. Right? We still hear rumors about that today. Oh, Jesus is the one. He's going to abolish the law of Moses. What? So they all want to go out and hear him, and he doesn't waste any time. He jumps right in and says, do not think. <laughs> do not think for even a moment that that's why I came. And now the need to interpret. Right? These words, to fulfill and to nullify or abolish. Again, we read into these words, but they were, they were rabbinical idioms. Right? They were sayings. That in the original King James, they really didn't have the archaeological evidence to understand what these idioms were. They just kind of read them 20th century into 1st century. But once we discovered that this was actually a, 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 a literary... A, a, a speaking tool of the rabbis as they taught. And what they're saying is this, is they weren't talking about um, obeying or disobeying, they were talking about the proper interpretation of the law. And if you go back and this is your homework today, go back and read through the Gospels, Jesus is constantly accusing the Pharisees of misinterpreting, of nullifying or abolishing, and the Pharisees are constantly accusing Jesus of not disobeying per se, but of misinterpreting interpretation is everything that's why jesus came so look at me i am the perfect interpretation of god watch me and you're watching god i interpret god it says this for truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Again, King James, jot and tittle. Uh, really, the idea is the tiny little letter called a yod. It's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And then on the, on the letters, they would put these little, what is called knots, these little embellishments. Right? These little, they called it a hook or a thorn. And so that's what Jesus was saying. Not the, even in the minutest detail of the law will not be done away with 
I've come to perfectly interpret it, not to do away with it. Y'all have been interpreting it wrong. I'm here to tell you the right way to interpret it. This was even in the news a while back. Um, the Israeli defense minister said this to the Palestinian authorities on terrorism. He says that he would hold them, they, he would hold them accountable to terrorism. Um, how did he say it? Uh, held accountable to the thorn of the yod, right? He's telling the Palestinians, I will hold you accountable to the thorn of the yod, right? To the, the jot and the tittle of the law. So Jesus fulfills both the law, or excuse me, he fulfills the law both by following it perfectly, which, by the way, enables him, makes him eligible to be, to be the lamb without blemish, right? Because we couldn't, because we're without blemish, or we're with blemish. So not only does he fulfill the law by following it without error, he also interprets it without error. And this morning we celebrate the single act of Jesus that, that encapsulates and perfectly interprets right, the entire message, body and blood of Christ. That was Christ's like, watch this. And if you watch this and if you understand what I'm doing, you will understand my heavenly Father. And if you don't understand this, you don't understand anything. Firehead Father, your word is, is so amazing. I, I don't know, about 20, 30 years ago, you know, I, I, I guess I rediscovered your written word, Father. And it has done nothing but amaze me since then. I, and, and you blessed me and you said, Jerry, I, I'm going to give you an opportunity to sit all day long and just dig into my word. And I would have thought at the time, what, are you crazy? And like now, like, Father, wow, thank you. Thank you for your word, Father. Thank you for the, the perfect interpretation of your word in your son, Jesus. And it's him who we adore and worship. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much, everyone.